Welcome to the World of Wisdom podcast. And um, today I have I have a bit of butterflies in my stomach because the guest is somebody that I think that I know really well because I've spent just you know way too many hours with you in my ears, um, and um, you've been a big influence on my thinking over the past um, couple of years or since you appeared. Uh, and I also love sand talk. And so that gives it away, kind of. I'd like to welcome Tyson Junkapurta to the uh, podcast. <laughs> I feel exactly the same way about... Um, I'm I'm yarning with Fritjof Capra on my podcast um, this week, and I have the same feeling. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah. That's hilarious. Imagine, Imagine just talking to, talking to Capra. Just, just yarn with him. That's awesome. That's it's my, insane, uh, isn't it? That's also my entry point into the complexity field. Actually, I took his class or his course. The, yeah, the Capra course. <sighs> wow. Back. Yeah, that's a what good circle. What was that like? That must have been mad. Uh, he's, so he's, you probably he's, just he's, hang out with Richard Capras all the time. I'm an antipodean, <laughs> mongrel, smartass, cheeky, no good person on the bottom of the earth here. Like. Uh, <laughs> This is where right. they send all the criminals. Look, you know, I get excited about Capra. <laughs> you just like, I think I'll, uh, I think I'll just go down the road and take a class with what's his name, Fritjof. Yeah, Fritjof, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, uh, but that's just uh, this is the testament of my ignorance, I think, because um, of I, I didn't know who he was, and I joined, and then uh, it was beautiful. It was wonderful. Sweet. I'm going to uh, to set us off, though, for those that uh, don't have uh, the relationship that I have with you. Uh, I'll ask you the very simple or potentially very difficult. I don't know. Different people have different experiences with that question. Um, Tyson, who are you? Oh, who am I? Um, yeah, I, I think it's. I just describe myself perfectly. I, I'm an antipodean mongrel. <laughs> From the um, you know top of the earth or bottom of the earth, depending on which way your map goes. But um, yeah, look, um, yeah, I, I guess I've I've had a, a a kind of a weird life, being sort of kicked and shoved and battered and bruised, um, pretty much all over the continent, and um, you know, ended up um, sort of falling ass backwards into some form of an education. Uh, later in life, and um, I got a doctorate about twelve years ago in education. Um, yeah, I, I pretty much uh, for the last couple of decades reasonably got my act together enough to um, uh, be doing quite a bit of research, and uh, but you know, spending a lot of time on the ground in communities and going all around Australia. Uh, I've spent most of my life um, in the bush. Um, you know, remote and rural areas growing up. Um, yeah. Um, so my, um, my, my people are Wick on, uh, uh, the Upledge clan from, uh, Western Cape York there. That's my, um, that's my family. Um, I have previous ties, uh, in the South as well in, um, uh, South Australia and and uh, other places down around here and and you know quite a few other ties um to various mobs 
around the place. And I don't know. So I guess having such a scattered, you know, web of relations that's, you know, continent-wide has me pinging around all over the place, or as for a long time anyway, until um, the last couple of years. Yeah, which sort of has me stranded in Melbourne, three and a half thousand kilometres away from home. Um, yeah, uh, so basically, you know, I did write a book a couple of years back and um, that did man- I, 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 that did manage to strike a chord with some people and, and so off it went semi-viral ways. I, I think people were panicking. You know. It was a pessimistic book when I wrote it and, and they edited some of the pessimism out, but, you know, the big criticism when it first came out was that it was a bit too, wasn't very optimistic about the future and I don't think it's going to be that bad, that fast boy, you know, <laughs> and then uh, and then everything happened at once. The whole place was on fire, and everybody's dropping like flies. And um, yeah, suddenly people were interested in the book. <laughs> How indigenous thinking could save the world? Quick, there might be some wisdom in there. Let's have a look at that. Um, you know, and so yeah, I, and now I just do lots of podcasts, basically. Um, but I <laughs> I am. Uh, uh, this year I founded the Indigenous Knowledge Systems Lab um, at Deakin Uni in, in Melbourne and you know, getting a pretty exciting team of diverse thinkers together, Indigenous thinkers um, from our continent here in its islands and, um, yeah, doing some, having some interesting thoughts and <laughs> looking at all the hidden drivers of things and, yeah, um, basically applying Indigenous complexity lens to, you know, the meta-crises and the drivers of those in the world and sort of using that kind of traditional systems thinking, you know, older systems thinking, like pre-Capra even, by about 50, 60, 70,000 years, yeah, and just applying that to all the big problems of the world and see what falls out. That's really inspiring. And I think, I mean, in your book, a couple of things that I hooked onto that I would love for us to, not that it's the agenda, because I don't really have an agenda. I'm just happy Mm. to be on the call. Um, But um, I dropped them in an email to you as well, is the idea of if we could talk around or, you know, play with the, this idea of linear time and progress, um, Mm. which I think is interesting. And then uh, also this idea of pattern thinking and maybe contrasted with patronicity, but just pattern thinking and how that is, how, how that can become available to um, people that haven't spent a lot of time in the bush or that don't have a relationship to nature. But, I mean, we do have a relationship to our surroundings, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also just relationships, just beautifully how you wove all of that into your introduction as well. But those are my curios- curiosities. And I don't know what came up to you. It sounded like you were heading somewhere with a time thing. <laughs> Oh, the time thing. Hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, um, I don't know, time is strange at the moment. There seems to be a, it seems to be sort of speeding up and slowing down at the same time for a lot of people. And there's, there's, events seem to happen really quickly mm. around people who are sort of weirdly living their lives quite slowly. And there is this um, story that I come across that, you know, that relates to uncertainty um, where people are saying mm. that, oh, it's, it's the, the fact that we are 
for the first time in the world, we are living in this great uncertain, uncertain, um, you know, I don't know. That our, our interactions with with the world is is defined by uncertainty, and I'm saying mm. I'm kind of sensing into it being, you know, that feels like bullshit. Um, it feels like we've not known the world for most of our most of our you know existence as humans. Um, yeah, I don't know. Where do you stand in like? Oh, well, I mean, I guess if you look at physics and that concept of uncertainty, the uncertainty principle, you know, it seems like um, the uncertainty principle gives rise to, you know, uh, observer effects. You know, it's like uh, if you're measuring this, then it's a wave. If you're measuring that, then it's a particle. Mm -hmm. But then also that comes across right through science with that idea of, you know, data contaminated by observation you know you've got to somehow separate yourself from the data you have to separate yourself from the field or you'll contaminate it and your data will be no good <laughs> um and then, so there's this idea that there's these observer effects that happen you know just the act of observing a thing changes it mm. um i think we're all observing everything all of us with different lenses and um and we're all changing things you know, but I think we're all, you know, and in, in doing that, we're we're creating uncertainty. So it's kind of the other way around. That's a, that's interesting. <laughs> Say something more about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, so so there's that famous thought experiment, a Schrodinger's cat. You know, but they, um, you know, you you. Put a cat in a box with, a, with some poison, and, and you don't know if it's alive or dead. So until you open the book, uh, open the box and look at it, it's neither alive nor dead. Mm. Or simultaneously alive and dead at the same time. Mm. That's kind of the thought experiment, you know, around that uncertainty principle. But um, me and this uh, a Gamilaroi um, tribe fella from um, uh, he works at Deloitte. I think he's a partner there. He didn't really tell me he was that high up in Deloitte. It's just a, a black fellow from <laughs> Western New South Wales, you know, from Moree. And I'm like, yeah. Um, we were talking about that. And we, um, I don't know, we came up with our own thought experiment to sort of more map the way we see things, you know. And so we came up with Schrodinger's wombat. <laughs> I don't know if you know what a wombat is. It's like a sort of a, you know, sort of marsupial. Mm -hmm. Walks around, looks a bit like a small pig. In Australia, anyway. Yeah, so Schrodinger's wombat, which, uh, you know, basically there is a wombat and it's in the log. And we're not sitting there deciding whether it's alive or dead because we're looking at a thousand things. We're looking at the season, you know, what's going on and it's the season where the wombats are on the move. Um, and so we know what it's going to be after. We know what plants will be flowering. We know the sap is running in the trees, you know, so the bark can be removed. We know a million seasonal signs that are going on all at the same time. So we're looking at all of those things. We're looking at, uh, you know, what the grass is doing. Um, we're looking at the tracks of the wombat and every other animal that's crossed that space in 24 hours. We can see all that. We're looking at the, uh, we're looking around, we're seeing no sign of snake. Can't even smell any snake around, um, you know, but we know they're nearby because there's always a snake. 
at least within 20 metres of you. Um, yeah, but he'll probably be over there in the dappled sunlight bit over there where the tiger snakes like to get in that one in, in this uh, in this time. Or, um, hell, uh, if it's the time when the wombats are on the move, probably not even that. He's probably going into the ground uh, to hibernate there, the tiger snakes. Are where, and I don't know, we're looking at a million different seasonal signs, um, a million different indicators. Um, where all the wombats are moving and what they're doing, we're looking at the lichen on the log, the you know the mosses on the log, the sunlight, uh, everything else. Is a thousand different things because the log is not a closed system. It's not a box. It's not a vacuum. You know, it's part of a system. It's a system in itself, but it's sitting within other systems, and it's exchanging energy and matter with other systems. The entropy of the log. It means that, you know, the entropy that's created from the log rotting is actually another system's lunch. And so that goes into the mycelium, you know, in the ground. Um, you know, ants are breaking down different parts of beetles that are eating that log. You know, all that uh, feces from those ones, the entropy from the beetles, that's being, you know, that's in closed loops, going, you know, closed loops within systems, but also across systems. Um, so all these systems are interconnected. And matter, energy, all these things are neither created nor destroyed. And we look at that log and we look at the scat on the rock there. We look at the tracks going into the log and we listen. And we know the wombat is alive in the log. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it's I was not sitting. simultaneously this or that. Yeah. He's in there. He may not be alive for much longer because we're hungry, but... Um, <laughs> he's there so anyway we messed around with schrodinger's wombat just for fun and um i don't know that was a thought experiment that took a while but it was because it was a lot of laughing um but yeah it just does you know, sort of i don't know give that other point of view there you know the the idea of the box the idea of the enclosed space mm. you know like this need to have enclosures of land where parcels of land are divided up as units of capital and movement across that land is stifled, limited. You know, so those systems can't exchange, you know, unimpeded, they can't, they can't, you can't have those flows within and across systems there, you know, from all the entities in the landscape that do that. This idea of a vacuum, of a, you know, an enclosed space around a system and that therefore, you know, over time in that closed system, um, entropy will increase and, you know, the complexity of whatever's in that box will decrease. So the catacores will die as well. <laughs> I know that that, <laughs> that was an uncertainty principle thought experiment, but I don't know, it, it brings to mind that second law of thermodynamics to me. Um, you know, the second law of thermodynamics being that, you know, entropy increases over time. Uh, in a closed system. Uh, people usually leave that other bit out because that's the model of time. You know, in physics, that gives rise to the arrow of time, uh, that idea that entropy entropy increases over time and that's what makes time run in a straight line. But they always, I don't know, I think the most important words in that sentence are in a closed system. Mm -hmm. Who the fuck lives in a closed system? Not me. You know, it's not about a box 
you know, there's that log and it's in <laughs> massive, you know, just concentric rings, infinite going out um, other systems that are all overlapping and exchanging, you know, information, um, energy, you know, spirit, matter, you know, all, all going round, round, round these infinite regenerative cycles. There's some kind of magic in there where that doesn't lose, that doesn't lose over time, but actually regenerates itself. So you have a dynamic self-organizing system that's sentient and can respond to change. Yeah. Might go through periods of, um, of hysteresis, but will you know, always organize itself around to, to regain equilibrium, you know, uh, homeostasis. You know, um, it's because it's uh, made up of, you know, uh, networks of systems, mm. you know, which to me, that's the, um, that reflects the first law of thermodynamics, which is that matter, energy, all this stuff is neither created nor destroyed. It just changes form and, you know, goes around in a different system like that. Yeah. I mean, you described as well so many relationships in that uh, image you draw of the wombat and how you were. Mm. You know, both in alive and dead things, I guess. The snake that you don't know where it is, but but also the <laughs> the log, if you will, yeah. which is you know, by my definition, the way that I was raised, it's dead, right? Yeah, and then you've got the the rock there, which is his, you know, fecal display. Mm -hmm. He always shits up on top of a, <laughs> a rock or a log or something like that. <laughs> He doesn't hide it away. He's very proud of that one, the wombat. He's like, hey, <laughs> everybody look what I did. And so, you know, but, you know, having a look at the, um, you know, the qualities of that substance as well, that, that will give us a fair indicator as to whether he's likely to be alive or dead in the, <laughs> in the log as well. <laughs> yeah. So that's his entropy that he's very proud of. <laughs> but, you know, one system's entropy is another system's lunch. Mm. So there'll be plenty of things that will get fat off that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting. With the, I just moved to Iceland because my wife's from here. And nice. this is, uh, I mean, in this place, um, rocks are alive for sure. So I'm, I'm sure that the rock would have an opinion about, uh, you know, the fecal matter on its whatever body part. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's it. No, no, Icelanders get it. <laughs> Uh, no, you can't uh, build the road there because uh, that is the ferries. Yeah, <laughs> ferries go across there, and the giants, uh, the giants walk over there. You got to go around the mountain that way. <laughs> yeah, no, that's yeah, it. Iceland gets it. <laughs> but that's, I mean, the other, the other thing that I'm curious about. It is, I see it sneaking in everywhere. This uh, assumption of progress as well, that before mm. things were bad and. At the moment, things are good or getting better, or even if they aren't good, they're better than they were. Um, yeah. And I just, I don't know. There's, it doesn't sit right with me. Um, and I heard you talk about it before. And there is that idea of currencies. And there's that idea of, you know, I guess it relates to closed and open systems as well. Some, yeah. In some manner. Hmm. Well, you know, I, I think um, a, a lot of it's about that that idea of the arrow of time, you know, that idea of you know, that entropic idea of time being linear and going forward. It, it sort of gives 
rise to that idea of progress, you know, and so civilizations have needed this, you know, in, in order to get a large population together who's happy to accept a hierarchy, you have to have some pretty good lies, you know, so you have to tell lies about the past and have people accept that in order to control the present. But then you also need to control their future and the trajectory of that, which you do with contracts. Uh, you also need monotheism, you know, originally. <laughs> monotheism was, um, you know, how you would ensure that, that people would honor their uh, contracts. Um, you know, the idea, like the, it was always written into the contracts that you, you would swear an oath to this all-powerful God who would smite you if you didn't honor the contract kind of thing. So that's, the, that's why they invented the big deities, you know, uh, rather than your sort of smaller regional entities that, you know, most people are, are familiar with uh, who have any connection to the landscape. Yeah. So there was that kind of idea of time and that... You know, uh, then the um, idea of progress sort of came into that, the idea that, hey, I know things are bad right now and you're having to work really hard and there's very little reward and you're having a really shitty, short, painful life uh, in service of me. But, you know, bear in mind that it's he's better today than it was yesterday and tomorrow will be even better. So we're all working towards this progress. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that myth of progress is like 10,000 years old. They've been using that trick from the start in order to rope people into their, um, you know, weird projects of, of city building and nation building, mm. you know. Um, yeah. It does take the land about 500 to 1,000 years to um, uh, to put that right, you know, to crush a, a civilization into the dust. The laws of physics do catch up with them, and the laws of physics are, you know, laws of the land. You know, um, they're simple ones, but they're part of it. Yeah, those natural laws. But, uh, yeah, oh, I lost the question now. It was uh, time. Hang it on. It wasn't that much of a question, but there was, I mean, what, what uh, comes no, up from progress, you, yeah. Yeah, yeah Sorry. progress. So, yeah. yeah, where did this, where did this, yeah, these myths of progress and myths of primitivism, you know, you, you always needed to have, like, uh, you know, this fantasy of a really horrible past in order to get people to accept the horrendous conditions of their present, you know. So, and this is always enforced, you know. Oh, you don't want to go back. What do you want to go back to, like, no penicillin when everyone's dying, um, etc. But, you know, they're starting to find that it doesn't even hold up for the, I mean, pretty damn miserable Middle Ages <laughs> in <laughs> Europe. No, pretty miserable. Mm -hmm. But if you... um if you take out, you know, the um, estimation estimates of uh, infant mortality, if you go from the age of three, mm. you know, to the age of 100, um, <laughs> people were actually living, you know, longer or as long as at least uh, how long people are living now. And they were living in good health, like uh, <laughs> in better health right throughout, throughout that. People... Um, uh, people certainly did have better health, and if you got through the first three years of childhood, you um, you did quite well. That was even in the absolutely horrendous, you know, miserable Middle Ages, you know. Um, and I guess I mean there was, there's been traditionally a, like a, you know, everybody assumes that you know everyone in the Middle Ages died by the time they were thirty or forty, and that was an old person, and you know, 
and it was all really miserable. Everyone lost their teeth by the time they were 18 or, <laughs> or whatever. You know, there's that um, horrendous image that we have. Um, but, yeah, it, even the, that wasn't that bad. But the idea is that before they even that was an improvement on our savage state before, you know, all the pagans, our pagan cultures of Europe, you know, the you know who were running around worshipping serpents and, you know, you hear even uh, that uh, Yuval, is it Noah Harari, mm-hmm. that fella, you know, even he is still citing, you know, as serious scientific data, you know, um, uh, two-thirds of all deaths um, in Paleolithic times were homicides. Science has proven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, what? tell me the data set. Tell me how you got, the, how you arrived at that. <laughs> it's just an insane. It's so unscientific. But you know, when it comes to um, you know enshrining these myths, myths of uh, you know brutal, savage, Hobbesian nature, red and tooth and claw, miserable existence, you know, before you know when it when it comes to you know, making sure that's in place, and then making sure progress is the shining light that we're all burning our lives for. Um, I, I guess they're capable of any kind of mental gymnastics <laughs> to avoid the sort of cognitive dissonance of you know having an actual look at that and seeing that it doesn't really measure up. It relates to a late curiosity of mine, which is stories, in a sense, and like mm. what are the stories that we live and. Not necessarily. I haven't been looking that much at the big ones, the ones you're telling right now, but I've been been looking mm. at the small ones, like um, I don't know, no pain, no gain. You know, those types of stories. Oh yeah. Um, mm. And and something that I've found from your work as well is that to be be a little bit aware of both the storyteller and if if he or she has the right to tell that story, you know, and, and how he stands in relationship to it, and you know, how it's, how it's holding him or her. And, you know, yeah. those, those arrows that go, I don't know, the way that I see them is that they go both ways. Mm. Um, and then we're telling stories all the time now. I mean, every, every marketing campaign is a storytelling campaign and every social media yeah. account is, is that as well. And it's hard to tease apart, you know, which is what? Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's because of the rival rivalrous dynamics too, yeah. you know. Everybody has to have a brand. Everybody has to have a story, um, ideology, etc. Theory of change, or whatever you like. And you know, the idea is that everybody individually has the, you know, their version of the truth or their story, and everybody struggles together to have their story come out on top. Mm. And that's the goal, that yours will become the dominant narrative and that you'll have lots of followers who will fight for you (laughs) to vanquish all other stories so that your story will become the one story to rule them all. Mm. Um, That's It's just (laughs) what an awful, awful marketplace of ideas that is. But is there a way to stand in relationship to that. I mean, if that is the, the underlying dynamic of the stories that we're telling or the, the society that at least I'm, I'm, or the civilization, if you want to. Um, yeah. How, how do you, oh, that, how do you that step leads out me to a, <laughs> Yeah, that leads me to a wrong sequence of logic. 
See there, yeah, that question leads me to the wrong sequence of logic because that would make make it so that I've just set up a, a criticism of a system, <laughs> you know, a problem. Um, you know, I, I've kind of you know criticized that system and said it's not valid. And um, the only way I can answer that question is then to tell you how good my one is, <laughs> how the indigenous system, you know, resolves that, <laughs> resolves that issue. And, you know, that, that's always the, um, the logic sequence of pseudoscience. Hmm. You know, if you've ever got, this is how you know when things are bullshit. So if you've got a scientist or a researcher or, a, you know, an authority figure, who, you know, begins their talk with, you know, or begins a sentence or, you know, a, a sequence of logic with, um, you know, critiquing one system and saying why it's not valid and then, you know, and the problems that it causes and then offers you theirs as the, as the real one, the solution, then you know it's bullshit. Mm. So anyway, I almost fell into that. <laughs> <laughs> I almost fell into that trap. You know it's bullshit because that's that's like the definition of a pseudoscience. A pseudoscience uh, can't exist um, without the science, you know, the other system of science that it's opposing. It's basically most of the pseudoscience is made up of um, rebuttals of another scientific system. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, you find this a lot with... Uh, uh, homeopaths, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not saying their whole system is rubbish. Um, you know, I, I know people who swear by it, but, um, but you know, most of the actual homeopath practitioners I've met are, um, you know, most of the knowledge they have is just, you know, opposing thoughts to allopathic medicine. You know? mm-hmm. And that, anyone who's doing that leads me to believe that that's uh, uh, pseudoscience. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, I see a lot of that in um, uh, a lot of the public health, <laughs> a lot of the public health propaganda that's going around the world right now too, which is leading me to believe that um, you know elements of the allopathic medicine community are um, devolving into pseudoscientists as well. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, to to me, it looks there's that dynamic in even in like climate sciences. Um, there's that dynamic. There's that opposition to something. To a, to a told yeah. story, I mean, but but how do you stand in relationship to it so that it becomes generative? Yeah. How don't you? How how do you avoid that trap? You know, how do you? Well, you you have to be satisfied with complexity, you know, which means getting out of that. You know, you know, here's the problem. You know, here's what's wrong with the situation, and here's the problems that it's causing, and here's my solution. You know, that's like no one's allowed to have an opinion unless they have those three, but. If you're thinking like that, then you can't see the complexity. You know, so, I mean, I just read a report that sort of um, is detailing all the findings of young Australians, you know, um, you know, in a climate, you know, climate study. Mm. You know, what young Australians want as a response to climate change. You know, almost um, who gives a shit what they want? I mean, they don't know. I mean, you know, so they, they, so, you know, they like, I mean, pretty much they're half the time they're aping the things they've heard grown ups say, um, you know, which is not much better, I've got to say. You know, everything is that linear solution to a complex problem. It doesn't work. You can't just attack one aspect of the problem. You know, uh, and we all act, you know, we, we all become activists behind that, 
you know, we want that solution. We demand that solution. Protest, protest, protest. Pressure, pressure. Oh, we're going to sign petitions. Oh, okay. Then, I uh, know oh, the government does some half-assed version of that policy. And, you know, even if they'd done it all the way, it still wouldn't have had the effect they want. So one of the recommendations was to um, end the um, the subsidies, subsidies to fossil fuel companies. Mm. So, I mean, as you know, the government gives, uh, you know, in, in much of the world gives massive, massive subsidies uh, to fossil fuel companies, you know, which basically allows them to stay afloat and make massive profits. Um, yeah, so, I mean, that would seem like, well, yeah, that's wrong and those guys are causing climate change, so we've got to put pressure on government to end uh, subsidies for fossil fuel industry. And But have they thought it through? Like, do they know how power works? <laughs> like, they think they're talking truth to power by protesting and making a change to something and taking away, taking something away from the powerful, but I, they need to like, just, just open, read one chapter of a history book, have a think about it for a minute. What does power do? So in, in that situation, the only thing that's going to change is that um, petrol is now $10 a litre. That's, that's the only thing that's going to change because the, <laughs> the oil industry is not going to sacrifice its profits and its quarterly growth because it does need, it is a, you know, they do have that growth imperative. Um, they have to keep showing increasing profits. So they will just directly tax the public <laughs> by increasing fuel prices in order to recover the lost subsidies money. Um, yeah, and probably within a couple of years, they'll have the subsidies back except twice as much as there was before. Um, that's where that goes. It's, it's, it, it's not, and that, that doesn't take much unpicking to do, you know. But I don't know. We we just uh, we constantly have these simplistic, you know, direct action. Is the worst phrase I've ever heard. As if something like as unidirectional as direct action is going to have any impact at all on a complex uh, <laughs> a complex system, especially a massively complex, self-organizing, rolling global meta crisis that sort of, you know, has its own, <laughs> I mean, it's pretty much, you know, a singularity at this stage, you know, it's become that complex and that self-organizing. Um, yeah. And in that, it seems, I mean, it kind of dovetails nicely into the second part of, of what I was curious about, which is patent thinking. And so I have mm -hmm. some mentors of mine that are, you know, very much involved in nature. I, I, also thrive. I love to go out in nature and I'm struggling to see, mm. you know, hearing you talk, the fluency that you have in how you describe these natural systems and what to look mm. for, how to look for, how you see these relationships and how you stand in, how, how you interact with them and how you are able to. I mean, I heard that Douglas Rushkoff, um, yeah. you know, podcast where you were tracking, uh, tracking kangaroos, you know, um, and it's so, ah, yeah, the, yeah. Um, mm. Yeah, the it, salon. Yes, the salon. The salon. Yeah. <laughs> Episode. Yeah, yeah. That um, was, and I was out at uh, a soccer field, I think. Yeah, and I, I just sort of walked off into the scrub off the soccer soccer field, and um, and I just started describing what I saw. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that was a uh, unfamiliar country to me, so I didn't know the system, so I was kind of just discovering it in the moment. 
and just re- reading country and all the layers of country and the interrelationships there and making predictions about the kangaroos, where the kangaroos were going to be based on the sign that I saw and the, the grasses and the amount of dew on the grass and where the ridge was and where the water flowed to and what was flowering, fruiting, seeding. Yeah. Yeah, that was cool. That was cool. It was cool to do that in real time because you hear people bullshitting about this stuff, but you don't know if they can actually do it, eh? <laughs> That's it. You know, you, you get, oh, seriously, you know, you, you get a lot of, you know, a lot of Indigenous people who are like, you know, 40,000 years, you know, whittling nuts and berries, you know, right here, special, special connection to the land. And, you know, um, but, you know, old girl there, <laughs> I mean, you know, she might, she might not know what to do <laughs> if she got off the bus and, you know, a, a few k's out of town. Yeah. And, I mean, the question that I'm sitting with is how do you, how do you start that journey to that knowledge? How do you enter into it? What, and mm. what, you know, it seems like you're using it also in the, not just in the bush, so to say, but also you're, you're yeah. using that same knowledge in your, complexity work and how you're looking at systems yeah. in general? Well, it has to be with others. But let's start with what pattern thinking is for, and just look at it from a data perspective. So, you know, you have all your data points. And then, so what do you look for when you're doing your data analysis then? You know, so I guess if you're using the indigenous pattern logic, then you're not really focused on the data points. You're focused on the relationships between those data points and of mapping out all of the different relations. What are all the different pairs of things? What things pair with each other? And what are unlikely pairings and entanglements that you might not have noticed? You know, um, yeah. And so you map out all those relations. Uh, you map out all the flows of information and uh, exchanges of energy, etc., between those data points in those relationships. And then you continue in that vein until you no longer see the data points, but you see the, um, the relationships, you see the connections. You know, um, I, I guess you could see that on this carving here. I mean, they can't hear it on the podcast, uh, but that's that uh, big uh, yuk point, that club that I keep the that first and second laws of thermodynamics on, you know, so you can see that snake there, that big serpent, he's almost eating his tail around that. But when you roll it across the clay, it just makes a endless line of serpents. And there's dingo and moon signs there. But what you're really looking at there is, so there's a whole heap of lines, you know, connecting up. And each one of those lines represents two data points you know, connecting. And then, you know, each data point then goes off to form another pair as well. And so these start off when you start mapping them, you know, you see the uh, quite uniform relationships that line up and then you go along. But then you might find, you know, that there's a, I don't know, a, uh, a data point about a, I don't know, a social program that has a three-year funding cycle. But then you might also notice a, you know, a particular kind of tree where the nuts only come once every three years. You know what I mean? 
And then, so there's something that they have in common. And so you look for the relationship there and, you know, maybe you'll find something, maybe nothing, but, you know, it'll be there. So you're looking at those relationships, but then you start to look beyond even the relationships. So, you know, the data points fade away and leave the relationships, which is the pattern. You know, I mean, you know, so those flows of relations. And then, yeah, you, in the end, you don't see even those, but you're seeing the patterns that are made. So you see the entire system and then you, oh, you see that one there? Okay, you go, ah, oh, that's a basin of attraction there. There is, so, I mean, obviously they can't see that. You go, okay, well, that right there, uh, all this is mapped uh, along the Great Dividing Range, by the way, this, this map that I'm looking at. So I go right there, in those people there and that yarn there, that story in that carpet snake place. I'm like, all right, that is a basin of attraction. There in the Bunny Mountains, I need to visit, um, yeah, that, that, that fellow again. I need to come back to that. <laughs> so there's a basin of attraction there because you can see that, you know, that you've got that strange attractor there and then you've got something coming out of that. There's a break in the pattern that's doing something interesting, but it's forming like a basin of attraction that's attracting, you know, all different kinds of things randomly. And there are new combinatorials happening in there. It's a very rich and generative space. And that's, um, that's really funny because that point, that place where I pointed to, that's, um, that's looking at this, uh, that's a place that talks about mimbury, which is, the word for those generative spaces, you know, are coming out of that carpet snake dreaming, you know, there's, um, yeah. So those sites of, uh, increase, you know, that actually, you know, regenerate and like creation and make that interesting stuff coming in the sort of, uh, continuous flows is how those flows describe it there. You know, uh, so I know I needed to, I knew I needed to work with that man. So I, I, I brought him into the lab. Um, uh, to run things, uh, run things based on that, on that uh, a methodology that sort of developed in uh, a conversation with that plant, that interspecies communication, uh, based on those three-year cycles, and uh, and a um, there's a, a kind of a set of protocols that come out of that law and that place around um, how you make an embassy of many different people coming together because that's a site where people would travel from thousands of miles every three years to eat that nut and everybody would come together for a big, big ceremonies, big knowledge increase, you know, activities, big intellectual, um, you know, uh, inquiry going on there, <laughs> sort of generating, innovating new knowledge, all that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, that was a good one to look at there. So, I mean, I guess that's kind of, you know, that's, that's how that pattern mind works. You know, you see the data points, then you see the relationships, you see the unlikely relationships, and then you lose the data points and you're just looking at the pattern, the relations, and then you lose that relations and it's just the pattern that's left and you, and then you identify the sites of increase in there. And, um, and you go and have a sniff around there and see what's interesting and see what ways you can sort of respectfully come in and, um, and be a part of that because um, that basin of attraction has then attracted you. And the difference is, because we were talking about that uh, uncertainty principle earlier, 
it's no observer effects because you're not standing outside of the system then uh, observing it. You're actually part of a dynamic, sentient, self-organizing system that's observing itself. You're one node in that. And so you're experiencing yourself in that system as part of that system and you're feeling those flows. And, um, you know, you're becoming part of the solution <laughs> in there. Yeah. Um, that's kind of how it works. That's very, that was very complicated, I know. It feels complicated. Um, and then yeah, what, what's in my... It was, I don't know, complex. I haven't really, I don't know, I haven't tried to really explain that to people before in that way. I did write a, um, I did write a chapter. We put together a bit of a data analysis methodology that tried to explain to people how to work that. <laughs> um, was, I don't know. In translation, it was kind of a, adapting elements of complexity theory, but also thought experiment. And, um, uh, so the analysis method was called thought ritual. Some people sort of picked that up and got it straight away. You know, um, other people looking at it like, what the hell is this? Because <laughs> yeah. there's, I mean, what you're describing is, it's rigorous. I mean, it, it's really difficult in, in some yeah. senses. And then I'm thinking, you know, the, the other patterns, I mean, some, some people collapse into QAnon, right? Or, mm. uh, you know, conspiracy or, um, you know, I don't know what yeah. I would say is wrong pattern thinking, or, or I mean, it, it is, it seems diminished well, in some way. Patternicity. You know? Right. It's the patternicity and there's the observer effects there. <laughs> If you're not part of the pattern, you're vulnerable to patternicity, which is sort of seeing what you expect. You have an idea in your filters or a shape, and then everywhere you look, you'll see that confirmed. You get that confirmation bias happening. And is the, is the key the participation? Yeah, well, I, I think that's, um, that's the reason why it's been so successful, um, disinformation, because it, it is truly democratic and truly agentic, each person is empowered to add to the body of law. And um, I think the other thing that makes it work that, um, you know, we have in common with, um, you know, our system of being too is that we're very comfortable with um, competing and even contradictory narratives sitting alongside each other. You know what I mean? So you could have two, two completely different um, conspiracy theories that, contradict each other and that can be believed by that the same person uh, at the same time you know it's yeah it's it's full on and and if i mean but but the participation like putting yourself into the system if that's one of the maybe the primary even um reasons why you would you know fall fall into patternicity versus when you are trying to develop mm. pattern thinking i mean i'm wondering there are, i mean qanon is a feels like an obvious one to some of us, I guess. Yeah. But I'm wondering if, you know, this whole, uh, the progress story that we started thinking about, I mean, it has, yeah, <laughs> it has some flavors of, of what we're talking about mm. now. I mean. Oh, it certainly does. And that always emerges um, in the middle class youth, middle class, middle to upper class youth of, um, so, you know, the sort of top, you know, 30, 10, 10, 30% of, of your, um, your population that always emerges in, in any civilization when it, when it starts going along. 
Um, yeah. And, you know, so it's, I mean, kind of like, you know, the new age movement kind of thing. Uh, it's a bit of a culmination. Uh, hipsterism is a bit of a culmination of that. So usually those bored, privileged uh, sort of kids are seeking some kind of fulfilment. And so they look to the margins of the society and they kind of, uh, you know, plunder elements of the language, dress, um, you know, practices and objects, you know, cultural objects of, you know, the cultures that are at the margins um, of their city, um, of their civilization. And, yeah, and they construct their, <laughs> their uh, you know, sort of subculture, their youth subculture from that. And then those youth subcultures tend to drive, you know, end up driving the narratives you know, as they grow older and, you know, um, I mean, they might start off as Wondervogels in Germany, you know, walking the hills and plundering the um, the cultures and languages and practices of the peasantry in the mountains and rediscovering a link with nature and making daisy chains and, you know, skipping around in lead o's and, and singing, you know, la la li, la 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 in the mountains. And, um, you know, then they come back and form the Thule Society and, you know, <laughs> and they, they start up a, a weird branch of mysticism that, um, you know, becomes the sort of occult Nazism that, that informs uh, some pretty horrendous shit down the track. Um, yeah, that's that's how these things usually go. Yeah, so, so you have all these, um, yeah, you, every civilization has, has these mythologies that... Um, they simultaneously sort of degrade and deride, you know, uh, the primitive cultures or, you know, the less developed cultures, you know, what they, what they consider to be, um, those things. And so you've got the ones that sort of, you know, portray them as savage, but at the same time there's this desire to elevate them and put them on a pedestal, um, you know, that they're noble savage there. Something cool and groovy to be emulated, um, yeah. So, so you find entire, you know, um, belief systems and sort of, you know, cobbled together, um, you know, quasi religions uh, forming around these things. You know, like the New Age movement, etc. Um, you know, that came out of it. Came out of all, all the the writings and teachings and stuff of of people like uh, Blavatsky. Um, you know, um, way back earlier, uh, last century. And, you know, Bl Blavatsky was sort of plundering the East, you know, um, uh, Tibetan Buddhism and or bits and pieces of all kinds of other things to put together these, you know, um, you know, myths of, you know, ancient originating noble cultures and, and um, you know, uh, previous advanced humans and all this sort of stuff. And, so that myth of uh, the Aryan race came out of that. Um, but that was also a projection from the ancient Greeks idea of the Hyperboreans before that, which they'd sort of imagined as this, uh, you know, originating master race as well. Yeah, so you found a lot of, uh, there was a lot of interest in the occult, you know, back at the start of last century, and that was informing <laughs> a lot of the weirdness around the world. Um, yeah, and so, you know, then you saw the uh, emergence of the tarot and, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the sort of backbone of the New Age movement that you find today.
so even if you look back to the beatniks, um, you know, Kerouac and all that sort of thing, you know, the beatnik movement uh, came out of sort of cultural tourism by that same, you know, um, disaffected middle-class youth that you find in every generation and every civilization uh, doing sort of cultural tourism to, uh, you know, into black communities and uh, adopting and adapting, you know, black patterns of speech and uh, clothing and um, attitudes. Yeah, so they took that on. You saw um, earlier that century also uh, gender and, um, you know, uh, differently gendered people. These were, um, you know, if you remember all the dandies and all that kind of thing, there, there was uh, there was this whole really uh, interesting movement of, you know, heterosexual middle-class sort of kids, you know, um, stealing bits and pieces from, um, you know, transgender and queer culture um, at that stage and adapting that and adopting that. Um, so you've seen it in lots of different dimensions of social space. And um, But the hipster movement is the one that brings them all together, you know, um, race, class, um, gender, sexuality, um, all of the traditions of the past that have uh, plundered um, you know, marginal cultures. Uh, the hipsters brought it all together and squished it into one uh, pair of skinny jeans. Hey, I'd just been talking while you were gone. Oh, no, they cut your power again. I am... Um, I'm back. I just kept talking while you were gone in case it was still recording. It's. It was probably um, still recording. Yeah, so, it was. It looks like so, it's still recording. Um, all right. But I, cool. uh, I took a all swing right. by uh, so there'll be, somewhere else. You'll be surprised. I hope you got editing facilities. I do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, cool. No, no, you might find fun. something to use in there. I just, I just rambled <laughs> on about, um, you know, cultural appropriation from. Um, yeah, that's a good, good rant to do. Yeah, no, we have um, yeah. electricians in the house, and um, power is necessary for being connected to the internet. Apparently, right. Mm. Sweet. One of those. One of those things. Yep. Um, that. I'm trying to regain my footing here. Mm. Mm. So this, well, were you you were talking about uh, you mentioned rigor, and then we sort of came around to sort of the idea of less rigorous practices. We we're looking at uh, pseudosciences, uh, but then also it looked like it was leading, you know, more towards um, um. You know, so so there is there is spiritual knowledge that is very rigorous and embedded in a landscape, uh, in landscape tradition, um, and you know, intensive, complex kin kin structures, and very careful structures of public and um, and and uh, restricted knowledge. You know that you have to access through, uh, you know. Um, you know, many different stages of initiation, etc. Um, you know, so there are there are rigorous, uh, you know, uh, spiritual and psychotechnologies, and you know, and uh, cultures and traditions of this, and methods of inquiry uh, in spirit and how to work that. Um, and then there's just you know the things that have, have arisen from um, those kind of indolent, you know, middle class youth adventures into other people's cultures uh, to find the magic. You know, to find magic, work magic. Um, you know, to divine the future. You know, from a tarot deck or some runes. You know, can, we're going to cast the bones. We're going to cast the rune stones. 
Um, like I don't, I think, you know, if, if you actually know any Viking animists, which I do, um, <laughs> you know, they're really insulted by that stuff. Like it, it takes a lot, you know, it takes a lot to become a seer in that tradition and you have to go through a lot of shit and you've got to give up a lot of things. <laughs> you know, you have to have terrible things done to you. And, um, you know, just the idea that someone could casually, you know, get a belly button ring and a, and a bag full of rune, rune sticks <laughs> and become a seeress. <laughs> it's like, no, no, girl, that's not how it works. <laughs> you can't do that. Well, you can, but it's just, it's, yeah, you're not doing the thing. You're not doing the thing. That's, it's not rigorous. Um, you know, yeah. And you'll often find, you know, when you're asking about their process or their methodology or the tradition that they're grounded in, then they will start with that pseudoscientific basis of um, shooting at the foundations of another discipline or a religion. Oh, well, organized religion is, you know, bad. See, that was invented by these guys to bloody blah, blah. Um, which is making me think that's exactly what I've done in this podcast. So that would make me exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> But there is, I mean, you know, yeah, always beware, beware people with beards. Um, <laughs> it's a long hair. <laughs> selling, selling you a problem and a solution. Yeah. I think it's, in, it's interesting. I mean, that's, that is the tension that I've been sitting with and also the um, unwillingness to move slow sometimes. You know, it's like a... Yeah this yearning for like the the you have an idea and then the second question is like how are we going to scale it you know um mm. and it comes so fast that's it yeah you, you well that's it it's kind of like that's an, an extra layer that's been added you know you, you always yeah if you want to make change or any, or be the change you want to see in the world you can't open your mouth you're not allowed to join the debate you're not allowed to put forward an opinion unless you have a complete plan, like you have to have a complete critique of the current system, and you know a, a strong argument for how it's terrible and it's it's actually going to kill everyone and everything, and <laughs> you know it's a, it's an existential threat. Get people on board with that, and then but then you also have to have a solution, you know, something in place. But then the next layer on that, I guess, in the last decade or so, has been you know, uh, but does it scale, you know? So it's, you've got to jump through all those hoops um, before you're kind of allowed to have, uh, you know, an opinion or a story that can be a contender. And then you throw it out into the marketplace of ideas and, um, yeah, everyone goes nuts, uh, either liking or disliking it, and then you see where you see where it all comes out. Maybe you'll end up being a cult leader. Um, although I guess then you've got just, Maniacs who don't even do any of that. They're just mad, random, chaotic, just throwing out just horrendous strings of random lies and barks and tweets all over the place until they become the president. <laughs> right. <So>. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, there's something about that. There's also, also something about this interaction of, of things. And I think, I don't know, as well in my, in the communities that I'm sitting in, there's, there's so much shouting and, and we all have our own thing, you know, it's, it's yeah. just 
longing for that sort of relation. And now I'm just speaking from my from my from my personal that that whole um, me getting thrown out of the interview was uh, you know jolted me a little bit. So, um, but I'm, I'm longing for that sort of relationship r- relational approach that I'm. I don't know if I'm reading into it because I I want it, but I'm. That's what I'm seeing in a lot of how you are talking. It's so it's so connected and so grounded and so real in some way. And mm. there there are checks and balances as well. You know, there's a seems to be a system for. Mm, you know, it's not it's not safety like you say. That's it's protection. It. You know, it's yeah, it is protection, and you can't. You're not just speaking for yourself. So I'm talking to you now, but I'm speaking from a family and and I'm quite intensely aware of that. But then a network of relations going out with, you know, a lot of elders, you know, who they don't just give you knowledge lightly. You know, you have obligations to them and to that knowledge and to that place and you have to keep coming back to that. You know, so, you know, when I'm talking, I am, you know, I'm speaking from that and I'm quite intensely aware it's very hard to bullshit. So, you know, even if you see the edge of a shadow of an echo of a pattern of bullshit, like like I identified before, you can't you can't continue. You have to identify. You have to say, oh, my God, I'm doing that pseudoscience pattern. If I answer that question, then I've done the full thing. I'm, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you, you do have those checks and balances because you're not just speaking for yourself you're speaking from a network of relations you're speaking from knowledge and most of that knowledge you're not even going to speak about but you're just going to speak from it and uh, in a way that's true to it you know and the way in the way that's meeting all your obligations to the people that you're in relation to and you'll feel it you feel it immediately if you go off track um yeah so you kind of can't bullshit so in that way, there's kind of that guarantee coming into the yarn. If somebody's there with a different story that contradicts you, that that's going to be valid and that those will be able to sit together quite comfortably and that there's some kind of dance that they'll do together. Um, but that's that concept of sometimes we refer to it as two-ness. And it's not a binary and it's not a duality either. It's a more what anthropologists call a dyad you know, it's it's those two th- like uh, fresh water and salt water. You know, they're two opposite things, but they're it's very sacred the meeting of those waters. You know, it's a sort of sacred action. I think of as naklokat um, is how I'd express it, but other people express it in different ways. And um, you know, it can be represented with a forked stick, even or you know something like that. But there is that. Um, yeah, there's that concept around the fresh and salt coming together and they don't contradict each other or cancel each other out, but they, they create those flows, they create that uh, increase system and that energy. So different stories, even conflicting stories coming together, um, these are all seen, always seen as a, you know, it's a good thing for them, those stories to come alongside each other. And uh, to, to prove the depth of the damage that's been done to me, by civilization is what I'm sitting with is how does it scale, Tyson? <laughs> yeah, how does it scale? How does it scale? Um, yeah, well, well, it's it scales it scales fract- fractally. Right. You'd be happy to know as a as a student of 
of copra. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it scales fractally. So, you know, um, you know, so our little dyad, our little pair, us two, you and me, sitting here, you know, we're um, we're, we have that relational space between us that when we've spent the last hour filling with knowledge, and that's the obligation of our relationship together, is to um, make that self other boundary between us more fluid, until I'm not just me and you're not just you, but we are us too. And that we share like a, a really special relational space in between us that it's our obligation every time that we communicate for the rest of our lives or think of each other uh, to fill that with knowledge, understanding that's unique to us. And then, you know, but that also affects all the other pairs that you're connected to because you connect out through your network to humans and non-humans uh, that you communicate with and you, you fill up those relational spaces. And that makes the big, vast web that is your mind. So it scales up fractally from that tiny little pair because you are your own boss and I can't tell you what to do. I'm my own boss. You can't tell me what to do. But we're bound by that mutual obligation of that relational space between us. So neither of us can transgress on that. You know, so there's that check and balance. Um, and then, but that scales out to the other pairs that we're connected to. So, you know, um, you, you might have another mate there and then, so I might have my, uh, my woman there and then, you know, me and my daughter. And so there ends up being like a little bit of an exclusive group of our families, you know, and sort of, you know, those families, your family can't boss my family. We do our own thing. You know, my family can't tell your family what to do. Um, but, you know, at the same time, we're, we're bound together in mutual o- obligation and interdependence, you know, so we're limited in that way. My family then can't damage your family or overstep or, uh, you know, pollute the commons, um, you know, fall into the multipolar trap of, you know, trying to gain a competitive advantage over you that doesn't work that way. So the rivalrous dynamic is gone from the start. So you can see then, of course, how that fractally keeps going up because, you know, then a few more pairs of those families together makes a clan and that clan is completely autonomous. However, it also also bound in relation to another clan. People marry across from that. And then those clans are connected to other clans and then it becomes the whole tribe and then the tribe is completely autonomous in their territory. Um, But they're also bound in you know, trade relations with the other tribes all around. And so then that region, you know, is completely autonomous and they have mutual aid and no one can boss them, but they can't boss the next region. You know what I mean? So it scales that way. It scales right up from us too. And it just scales fractally with that perfect balance between autonomy and relatedness, these things that are supposed to be complete opposites and the Western world views as opposites. You know, you can, it's about, it's always that struggle between the individual and the collective. Capitalism and communism, you know, choose a side. Which one are you? Which one are you for? You know, but they're both two sides of the same coin. You know, these are false sort of rivalrous dynamics that are really, really unnecessary. Because individual or collective, you're, you're both. You're both all the time. You are always asserting both. And if you're not, then you're um, so horrendously out of relation as to be almost dysfunctional. And that's how you get Afghanistan. (laughs)
full circle. Uh, but but what I'm there you go. There's my Afghanistan <clears throat> hot take. I haven't done one yet because <laughs> I usually do cold takes. So I like to wait like at least two months before I like have a take on something because you want to have a good look at it. And you want to go really slow. <laughs> cold takes are always better than hot takes. So I'm not going to do Afghanistan or Haiti. <laughs> All right. What you're talking about now, though, is it seems, you know, it, there's something around um, the relationship. And then I heard somebody talk um, against the idea of us wanting to, sort of, sort of us longing back to this, uh, again, then this primitive past or like this tribal romanticizing the indigenous communities for for how the relations, relationships were and, and uh, could be because you could never step out of them. And so that there's the um, idea that that what you're talking about now would be an imposition on the autonomy of the individual because you cannot um, leave those relationships behind. Does that make sense as a... Yeah. Well, well you, you don't even exist. You don't even exist without those relationships. Like you, you can't even exist. There's no such thing as just an individual in the world. Like you, you can't even be. You're nothing. Um, oh, the Vikings. Um, I can't remember which language, Scandinavian language, but they call they call somebody like that a nithing, n i t h i n g. I can't remember if it was Danish or, or what language it was. Yeah, nidning. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's also in Swedish. It's there in Swedish as well. I'm sure it's in Icelandic too. So it's also in Swedish. That's mad. Yeah. I just, I, I'm, I'm really obsessed with Vikings. So, anyway. But yeah, I know they have that same concept that, you know, a person out of relation, someone who's an individual is just, you know, a nithing. They, <laughs> yeah. Is it nithing? Like, that's how I read it. Or, or is it like nithing? Or is it pronounced it completely the other way? In, in, in Swedish, uh, it would be. Uh, needing, like a needing. It's a it's a need dot. Like you have something that is, but I don't know the etymology. Like I don't know the language well enough to. Uh, I know the language. I mean, it's my mother tongue, but I don't know the root of the word. I don't know the word well enough to to speak for it. Sorry, you're you're quiet. Or yeah, no you. Sorry, what's your what's your mother tongue? Swedish. 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 Yeah. All right, sweet. I'm Swedish Indian, and now I live in Iceland. Swedish Indian in Iceland. There you go. It's like um, a travel show or a cookbook. Exactly. It's just make some interesting fusion food, I think. Or a podcast. There or you a go. podcast. <laughs> right. Um, right. I'm thinking to round off um, to respect time and, and those things. And I'm also, that was a lot, that part in relationships. That's one of the things that I've been sitting with. So I need to kind of let that sink in. Um, it's such a different perspective than I've, I tend to encounter. And that's why I keep coming back to you as well for me personally. I mean, it's, you're speaking from a different place that I'm used to hearing people talk. Mm. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, well, actually, is there something else that uh, wants to be said in this? Like, are, wh what are you sitting with? right now mm. only that somebody texted me for before a really panicky text and said 
Um, oh my fucking God, it's raining in Greenland. Uh, is that true? Like it usually doesn't rain there, it snows. And it's raining there today. Was was that was that real? I, I saw that uh, it was raining for the first time at the top of Greenland um, a few days right. ago. But I don't know well, how when their data set started. Speaking of data sets, um, mm. but yeah, we'll have to look into times that. are yeah. times are dire. I think. Um, well, I, I do have a yeah. There's there's an elder that I um, you know have, have a relationship with. Um, who is very, very interested in Iceland. And I think she's on her way over there uh, as soon as she can. Uh, COVID's disrupted that a little bit. But she's, um, yeah, she's had some, uh, I don't know, communication, I guess, <laughs> that's drawing her there. Um, uh, she's very interested in the elves and she's very interested in something going on with the volcanoes there at the moment. Uh, yeah, and so yeah, um, she's been. Oh, she's been talking to a lot of people over there and is organizing to go over and and do some, um, you know, ceremony stuff over there to, um, sort of bring into dialogue, and bring messages back from uh, elves and volcanoes in, in Iceland. Yeah, yeah, that's, it's one of those things that I've been living, born and raised in Sweden, like I said and recently moved here. And my whole life, I've never really felt connection to the land. I've never had a, a feeling that I'm going to miss the land. And after, I mean, I've mm. been here now uh, past 10 years since I met my wife, but this land speaks to me. So it's, yeah, it's a special place. I've heard it does that. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's no, it's no, it's no salties either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, if you run into Floki <laughs> there. <laughs> right. I don't know if you ever watched that TV oh, show, yeah. but it's, it's Iceland certainly spoke to him too. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Yeah. All right. So, Tyson, um, right. where can people find you online? Do you, do you want people to do something? Um, I would prefer it if they didn't and just leave me alone at this stage. It's, <laughs> it's getting very difficult to manage all these relationships. I can imagine. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm not here to plug stuff or anything or do any marketing. I'm, I'm not into the branding stuff. Yeah, I'm just here for you. I appreciate this yarn and the conversation. Yeah, no I mean, worries. this is yeah, a blessing. <laughs> Sweet. Well, I better go and sort out my son. It sounds like he's having a tantrum. Mm, one of those. Yeah, they yeah. can relate to that. Yep. That's the right priority. <laughs> Thank you. That's it. All right, Brass. Well, very good to talk to you. And um, yeah, we'll see you again. <laughs>